I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. You're listening to a special five part series commissioned by Flag Art Foundation for their exhibition, The Times. The exhibition uses the New York Times as its point of departure and features over 80 artists, artist duos, and collectives who use the paper record to address and reframe issues that impact our everyday lives. I wanted to come at this from a completely different angle than producing an object for the space. As a sculptor, I felt like I needed to give something, but really, as an artist, I felt like I needed to create a starting place for you to come in and enrich the viewing experience for everybody involved. For me, that was talking to the people who actually work within the walls of the New York Times. So, in the next five interviews... I speak to editors and writers who work in different departments of the New York Times. We talk about why they do their jobs, how they do their jobs, and what it means to be a part of this institution that everybody knows about. The list of individuals that are included in this are Michael Owen, Rick Rojas, David Coleman, Andrea Canapel, and Randy Kennedy. I have to take the time also to thank all the people involved who helped me get these interviews because it wasn't easy. And thank the Flag Art Foundation for allowing me to contribute to this great exhibition. So without further ado, here we go. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we are, of course, the beeping starts as soon as we start the interview. (laughs) (laughs) The old reverse beep. Uh, I'm fine with it because it just shows that we're actually in New York City. We're in New York Construction City. And you've taken the time to speak with me over your lunch hour here at Hauser. Yes, at Hauser and Worth. So this is new for you within the last three weeks, four weeks? Last, this is, I think this is week four. Yeah. So, um... And I was at the New York Times for 25 years. So as I've told people here, you know, the last time I started a new job, I was 24 years old. Is that so this right? Is a, this is a very, very new uh, experience. How does me. it feel? It feels good. It really does feel good. It's, I mean, A, it's nice not being in Times Square, where I worked for a oh, really long time. I didn't even think about that. And it's, it's nice not to have to set foot in that neighborhood again. And Chelsea's wonderful. Yeah, you Chelsea's know, great. There is, although, as we can hear, there's the construction. a whole lot of construction going on <laughs> all over the place. It's probably the new building for Hauser. <laughs> it's, it's, this, it's this crazy gold uh, condo building over here. And the, the temporary Hauser facilities are in the old DIA. So what yes, we that's were, where we are right now. Yeah, what, we were talking about that when we were walking up the stairs, too, to see the change in venue because it was the independent art fair for a while. Yeah, and then before that, you know, Dia's exhibition spaces. So when I, I moved to the city in 1991, and a lot, you know, I saw a lot of great shows here, and it was, um, you know, it's a place that this building figures into my memory of beginning to learn about art. Well, quite, I came quite a bit. I came to grad school. I graduated um, in 2007 out of New, in New York City here, and for me, the uh, the building Dia was already gone, so yeah. I, I didn't have that history of the exhibitions and stuff that were taking place within the building. I didn't have that history within here. Yeah. I have the independent. Right. 
So yeah, which was a really, it is a really good art fair, and seeing it in here, and where you kind of had that feeling of like layers of history in this building was very cool. So it's it's kind of wonderful to get to work in here. We could go in so many directions here. Yeah. Because you have been at the Times, or you were at the Times for so long. Yeah. But one of the things that, just looking at your history and doing some research on you before, you didn't start in the arts section. No. I started, uh, I, I was an English major in college, but I was also somebody who, from the time I was in high school, read a lot of art history and theory. And I grew up in rural West Texas where it was, you couldn't, it was very hard to see any art. But I read about it and I knew a lot about it. And then when I went to college in Austin, Austin's not a great art town. Uh, it's getting a little better, but it was, it, it was not a not great art museums town. museums and... No, but Houston was fantastic, and I had a friend who was at Rice, and so I was going back and forth to Houston a What's lot. What's the distance? It's about a three-hour so drive, two-hour drive. you got to really want to do it. In, well, in Texas distances, that's just right around the corner. So it really it <laughs> felt like... So I would go there and go to the Manil and go to the MFA and go to the Museum of Rice University, and that was like... It's, I mean, Houston is a pretty great art town. So when I started at the New York Times, um, like most really young people who start there, I started as a clerk, which means, you know, you're getting coffee and you're answering the telephones really? and you're doing all that sort of stuff. And then I was promoted to reporter when I was about 26. So how long were you at the Times before you got promoted to the reporter? I was there, I was there sort of in a, in a, a structured program called the writing program where you That's start you as it. a clerk and then you would sort of have a tryout eventually as a reporter and if you were if you made it, you made it, and if you didn't, you went away. And so um, I started out as a clerk, and about a year and a half later, I became a reporter. Almost two years later, I became a reporter. And when you're a young reporter at the Times, you start on the city desk, and you do everything. You do all the stations of the cross. Is City you know, Metro, or is that? City and Metro, or yeah. At the time, it was called, it's probably still, it's the Metro Desk, which right. is covering New York City. And so it was doing all the... That's anything you know, and everything. Everything and 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 you know beat subject area. So it was like I wrote about, I covered city hall on weekends. I wrote about Brooklyn. I covered the hospital system in New York City. I wrote about public housing. I wrote about crime. And then eventually I wrote about the subway. I was a transportation reporter, and I I wrote a weekly column about the subway that really wasn't news. It was kind of just. It was like the folklore of the subway. It was like what it, this weird How were you able to get yourself into, did you pitch this or what did you? You know, it kind of, it came out of a, an editor there named John Landman had this idea during the subway series, the World Series, when the Yankees played the Mets in 2000, in 2000. Um, And he said, we should, because I was a transportation reporter then, and he said, why don't we, why don't we try to do, while the series is going on, these little features about, like, you just stay in the subway and you talk to people who are Mets or Yankees fans, you oh, know, that's cool. traveling between the two stadiums. That's got to be fun. It was fun. Yeah. And also, you know, there were great, uh, the Times had never had a subway column, but there had been ones at other papers, like Jim Dwyer did an in- incredible one um, at Newsday. And so... I thought this is a great chance to actually get to pretend like we have a subway column, right. uh, which we should have had long before. Long before. Um, so I did that, and then it turned into a weekly column called Tunnel Vision 
that was just me you know trying to like pretend like I was Joseph Mitchell and like just exploring <laughs> like all the weirdness and unexpected stuff down in the subway and how how people dealt with it and you know interviews with track workers and you know homeless people and crazy people so all types everything yeah. and so I did that for um, four years and then and then turned, That's a long time turned that it was it was a long time it was fun to write it was but it was also really hard to report because talking to people in the subway is a tough you know it's, it's loud everybody's really in a hurry They're everybody's a little bit more suspicious than they would be well, on that's the new york street. in general yeah and so um but it was fun to write i mean there was there were no lack of topics so were you doing other writing at the same time with the times then or just the subway columns i was doing i was covering the news of the of the whole transportation system of the city which is like taxis commuter trains, uh, ferries, you know, uh, anything that moved in a sort of a, a, a municipal way, it, I, that was what I was writing about as a news person. Right. And then I would do this column every week as a, a different kind of thing, not really the news. It was more, I don't know what you'd call it. It, was, it wasn't entertainment, but it was kind of, you know, it was an exercise in writing and in kind of like exploring a particular world inside of New York City. If the more I do this podcast, the more respect I have for actual reporters. The amount of work that goes into, I can't imagine you just telling me all this stuff, how much work must go into tracking down the leads, doing the writing, doing the editing, yeah. putting it together. It's a nonstop job. It was You've sort got of to be a, sleepless. a nail biter sometimes where you were trying to you know, you were trying to keep the uh, like stay one column ahead so that if something fell through, you wouldn't you be in the lurch. Coverage. But you were, but I was often in the lurch. And I remember there was one time when I was trying to do a piece about this mariachi band that played on the subway, and they were supposed to meet me like literally the, the day, the morning before the column ran. So I was going to have to meet them, interview them go back really quickly and write an 800 word column and they and they didn't show <laughs> they up they did not show up that morning and so i just had to come up with another column idea so it was you know it that's was incredible. like see to the pants stuff but it's that's like a daily newspaper so one of the reasons i wanted to do the interviews with people from the times and who have written for a long time is talk about what drives you to continue you did this for 20 some odd years right how that's got to be taxing after a, an extended period of time it's got to be tiring uh it is it is although you get used to it i mean i think one you know i started uh we were talking earlier i mean i started before the web and so right. there there's like there was a kind of a rhythm to the way the new york times worked then which was you know everything was geared toward uh, an evening everything started to speed up in the afternoon toward the evening toward closed for print um, because you had a deadline to cut off what was the cutoff for that as i remember it like the first edition deadline was something like it depended on the sections but i think for metro it was something like eight o'clock or, or so fairly late fair, fairly late but you know you were trying to uh you know pin down facts and get things written and have them on the copy desk so that those things could be uh, published and then you know once it was a slow thing, but I, but once we started publishing online, you know, 
it took a long time, but you started to see how those rhythms changed and how there, was, there wasn't that kind of a flow to the day. It was more dictated by what's happening right then. And so, yeah, it was, it was hard, but you learn how to do it. And, and I, you know, I've always, even when I was in college, I was, a daily, I was a journalist for a daily paper when I was at the University of Texas. And so I, it's just all I ever knew was, was like the, you know, thinking about the deadline and how quickly you had to do it and how well you could hope to do it in the amount of time you had. Right. And then sometimes you'd have more time and you'd be happy because you could do it better. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, you just... Uh, you get in the groove. You get in the groove. So talking about the way the paper has changed over the period of years, because you saw yeah. it from the inception of when digital really started to take yeah. place and grab hold. In fact, I remember I was working a late night shift where I would come in at seven at night and leave at three in the morning. This was called, for Metro? What was this this for? is for Metro. It was a shift called Late Night Rewrite. And I remember distinctly um, uh, a woman who was an editor, a photo editor, telling me, come here, I want to show you something. And at that point, we had these dedicated terminals. And uh, she took me back to where the photo area was, and there was a computer that was hooked up to the web. And I think I had read about it, but I didn't really focus on what it was. It seemed like a sort of a technical thing to right. me. And she showed me, and I remember it was like a, it was like a, the site she was looking at was like this really badly made, like, it's like joke, softcore porn site. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, that's the internet. This is the internet. This is happening. And I was like, what's it for? This kind of stuff? And I, so, you know, I, and then not long after we got email and, you know, and, and then the Times started publishing, you know, on the web and uh, in a very rudimentary way. But yeah, it's it's so, it changed. It just it changed. You know, the expectations for how how fast the Times thought it should be. Quickly, you should be able. To how aggressive it thought it should be. Does quality of writing go down then if you have to produce content? So well, quickly? I think inevitably it, it has, has to. It right? has to. I mean, I, I think. You know, I think that at, at the times you you would think of you would think of certain things as this has to be quick and it can't be perfect. And then there were other things you can think it could be slightly slower and it can be better. Right. And there are other things that you really can polish. And so there, you began to have this feeling that there should be that there were going to be different grades of what you had What's to do. What's acceptable and yeah, and I think even um, in the art section. Less so in the art section because it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to move at the speed of, say, covering the White House or covering. It's a little more insulated from. To to a degree, the although. Breaking news. Yeah, although you know, I think uh, during my thirteen years in the culture section, I watched it become faster, off of the mark on certain stories, and being able to tell those stories, you know, well, quickly. quickly. And, and for the most part, I always felt like, I, you know, I usually felt like I had enough time to do something right, which is not to say, you know, there were typos and other things that happened. Well, in those of course, that it just, just happens. But that happen when you're moving at that speed. You know, I guess I, I do worry about how the times will change with all those pressures to be super, super fast. You know, and it's full of really brilliant dedicated people so I you know I think they'll figure it out but it's it's a tough 
it, it is a tough time right now, I think, where the Times has to think about quantity versus quality and speed versus quality and all those sorts of things. Well, speaking I don't envy people having to deal with those. I was speaking to Michael Owen about this, uh, editor of the news desk for the Times. Yeah. And his job is specifically to edit sort of that content as it comes out for breaking news. Right. And the layers of individuals involved in sort of the, the machine that is the Times working to make sure those things are corrected as they come out in real time. Yeah. Just sort of blew my mind. Yeah. But at the same time, you have to decide what content is relevant in a period of 10 minutes. Right. Which is almost impossible to do sometimes. It is. So... I think it's tough. And I think that one of the things, when the Times was primarily a, a print place, one of the things it was really good at was prioritize. You know, it, it was good at saying to the reader, here's here's how we prioritize what we think is important today. When the Times is moving so quickly, it's harder, and, and if, you know, depending on what sort of format you're reading it on, on your phone, in an app, if you're looking at the full site, right. if you're looking at it on, on a screen, it's, hard, it's harder for the reader to figure out, I think, just for me, it's harder for the reader to figure out like, oh, what's, what's really important here? And it's also harder for editors and reporters moving at light speed to make those decisions about like, is this really, is this important? Do we have enough context yet? Do we know? And you know, the imperative being speed, you have to kind of you think, well, let's, let's get it out there and we'll figure it out. One of the things I've noticed for myself personally is that with the new way that breaking news comes out, and specifically for me, the Times and dealing with the Times website and everything, I've lost content that I used to go seeking because I'm always following the new thing that pops up within the next 10 minutes. Right. So I, I used to follow the, the culture section religiously instead of go through and read all of those articles one by one. And I've noticed just thinking about this and talking to you and the other right. individual, I don't do it like I used to. Right. Because you don't dig deeper when all of that stuff is just given to you on face value. Yeah, it is. It's hard. The structure of it I think that's a problem that uh, a lot of publications have to figure out now is figuring out a way where you know you're you're putting all this you're you're putting all this work into all these great pieces and this great product and then you, but you you know I think people end up missing some of it because it's just not structured the way it used to be. I mean it was a you know it used to be a, an actual physical structure and you knew if you were comprehensive in reading it, um, I mean, this isn't, this isn't new, but yeah. this is, I think, as it really, really becomes, like the phone becomes the primary vehicle for reading, like how, the trick is how to structure it in a way where a reader feels like he or she gets a sense of like everything that's being written in that, you know, that day or that news cycle did or whatever you, you would call it. Do you as a writer, uh, not necessarily pressure from the Times, but did you as a writer on yourself feel pressure to then write differently your content I, I didn't I you know there was there was a lot of discussion in, uh, about that as I was leaving the times about you know thinking about uh, being responsive to a reader who's reading something on a phone you know usually in in some sort of transit and thinking about a, a narrative pace and all that kind of stuff and the top of the story and grabbing somebody more quickly 
but I, it didn't change a lot for me. I mean, I always felt like I tried my best in a sophisticated way to engage somebody right from the beginning and not be too discursive and go too slow and try to be too literary. But it, you know, it was about, I was always cognizant of the fact that even if it was in print, it was usually somebody who was reading that on the go and not, right. in, not in an ideal situation. And so you, you had to try to grab them quickly. I always felt that way. Well, it's just your style of writing probably a bit as well anyway. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, there were always editors over the years who were like, no, 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 this takes too long, this <laughs> takes too long. And I, you know, so there were fights over that kind of stuff. But I, I didn't feel, I, I never felt like I had the luxury to just like, you know, go on and on and on before I got to the point. I, I wanted people to, I mean, I always wanted people to feel like they, if they read one sentence, they, they really wanted to read the next one and get to the next one and figure out what this was. And then even if they weren't particularly interested, by the time they were five sentences in, they were going to be interested. That was always the challenge. We were talking a bit about that just briefly right before we came in. I was looking over all of the articles, not all of them, but I was looking over a bunch of the articles that you'd written over the past years, and I had forgotten all of the, the pieces that you've written and that I've read. Right. So it sort of kicked back in. I was like, oh my gosh, you wrote that one, and you wrote that one. But what was interesting to me was they, they sort of broached totally different subjects Throughout, so like one of the more recent ones was Nancy Spector returns to the Guggenheim from the Brooklyn Museum. Right. But then you also speak about arts group battling for plans to fund with Trump, uh, with Trump coming into office. Yeah. So. Well, there were all the. It was sort of like whatever news came along in a given week that I could had the time to cover. I would cover. Did, but then, did, but then you know, I my priority was also was trying to write. Profiles because I I I really enjoyed that, that and I think I was good at it. But to try to write a profile that said hopefully would say something beyond just the fact that like an artist had a show coming up, but you know would really try to I, I would try as hard as I could to find artists who who were even if they it was older artists try to highlight the importance for why this artist was somebody you really want to know about now. Right. Um, and then also I was just following my, my own curiosity and my own loves and trying to, you know, write about artists I had always wanted to meet and I had always loved so, so and wanted to spend yeah. time with, you know. So, and I had a, you know, I, it was 12 years and I, um, I mean, I was saying to people at the Times recently at a sort of a farewell party, it was like, 12-year grad course, except it was better than any grad course could have been yeah. because I got to spend, you know, immense amount of time. You had access. With, yeah, and the Times is, it's a huge luxury, and I was always aware of the fact that it, it opened doors. You could get your foot in the door. You could, or you, or, and you could really, you know, people would realize this is a serious journalist, and it's a serious publication, and... Um, it's got a serious audience, and so you could spend time. And so, and I was saying to you, you know, in the last year before I left, I got to go to to Galisteo, New Mexico, and spend a day with Bruce Nauman, who is one of my favorite artists ever. He's sort of a god in my pantheon, and so 
I got to spend time with him. I got to spend a lot of time with Vito Acconci before he died. This He died recently. And you wrote the obituary too, didn't you? And I wrote, wrote yeah. his obituary. Um, uh, but there's just been, you know, a lot of artists over the years like, uh, like Isaac Enskin, like Ida Applebrook, who is actually a, a, an artist from this gallery, who I wrote about uh, like a decade ago um, and just recently saw again, who's a, an incredible artist. But there were, you know, there were a lot of the John Chamberlain, I got to write about him not long before he died and go interview him out on Shelter Island. That's um, incredible. Yeah, and so it was, it, you know, it's people who are old enough, some people who are old enough to be really canonical artists. And you think, God, I get to go see them. I get yeah. to spend time with an artist who's, you know, like Chamberlain, who's had, he's art historical. He was art historical while he was still alive. So it was, it was wonderful. I'm doing a podcast with B. Wirtz later this week. Oh, yeah. And I'm great artist. I love him. He's a friend, but I'm just giddy that I get to sit down with him. Yeah. Again, his studio after, must look fantastic. It's in his basement. It's really? It's a tiny little thing. Yeah, but he's like, it's uh, first time I met him, we sat across from his kitchen table for three hours and just talked. Wow. Art on the Yeah. He's an amazing person, too. So, yeah. But knowing that feeling of going into a space with somebody, what did you, I guess, me as an artist, I know what I would go in and sort of try to pull out of those conversations with those individuals. You as a yeah. writer, I guess this is a twofold question. One being, when you step back out of that, what did you sort of take away from what that was? And then secondly, how did that sort of adjust what you were writing about for, for contemporary, de dealing with contemporary artists and stuff and looking at their work yeah. and being critical about what they were doing? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think when I, when I started writing about artists, I was and throughout, really, I was incredibly humble and I would think, you know, I, I'm going to try to teach my, before I go talk to somebody, I'm going to try to really, really do your know research. my, do my homework <laughs> and know, and, but then at the same time, like, go in there and think to the degree I can to let the artist dictate where the conversation right. will go because, you know, as much as I would go in knowing, uh, often, almost always, I, was, I would be surprised by what, the artist would, you know, where the artist would what go direction? and sort of like yeah. telling stories and talking about his or her own history and things like that. It would always be things I didn't expect. And so, um, you know, and then occasionally I would go back and, and uh, you know, I was sort of, it was always excruciating to transcribe tapes, but, you know. Oh, is that what you did? Okay, I was going to ask. So you bring in a recorder and record? Uh, quite often, not always. Sometimes I just it was just me in a notebook. I mean, I wrote really fast and I was, you know, I, I do write really fast. And I also, some, there sometimes it wouldn't ever feel natural or organic to pull out a tape recorder. Right. It just felt like these conversations would go much more uh, easily and, and authentically if, if it was just me in a notebook. Yeah. But often I did record and I would go back and I would listen to those and the, the excruciating part of those would be where I would hear myself interrupting a story that really should have gone on and I just would get nervous and ask a question and it would it would stop that I, I do the same thing and it I... didn't so it would but it would teach me I would try a, a really hard not to to, to let those just to yeah. watch where it went and try to sometimes steer it a little bit but not much um, and so 
And then the older I got, the more artists I talked to and the more I knew, I think, I mean, I'm, I wasn't a critic, I'm not a critic, but my choices were dictated by like artists I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't really write about somebody I wasn't really excited about and didn't like or didn't find their work interesting. And so in a way, those choices became a little bit uh, 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 critical because they were, they were definitely... They have to be, right? Right. If I was, if I, if I had to, it had to be somebody I was engaged with and I thought they were doing important work and, and it, often I wasn't alone. It was like some artist who everybody... Wanted to write about. Right. I mean, I remember when I wrote about Ryan Tricartan early on. I mean, I was... Everybody was on... Was far from the first to be yeah. excited by him, but I do remember uh, Elizabeth D. represented him then, you know, when he started out and I remember she gave me all of his early work and I went down to Miami to interview him and I just sat in a hotel room for one day and I just watched everything and it, it was one of those experiences where and I don't have this very often but I remember walking out of that hotel room and the entire world looked different really it was like I was living in Ryan Tricartan's mind for about 24 hours that's rather intense to watch all those videos back to back, to back yeah to. but it wasn't it was also it was this revelation like Jesus Christ this is like a whole this guy's doing something with parts that aren't new, but the, what he's doing with those parts is like really doesn't feel like anything I've That's seen exciting. before. Um, anyway, so it was it was following what other people were excited about, but it was also sometimes artists who I was just really excited about, and it was was a tremendous amount of fun. So you and I don't want to talk about this a bunch, but I think it's interesting. You've moved to Hauser to continue to be a writer. Essentially. Yeah, that's that's the way I felt about it. I mean, I had I just sort of felt like I had been at I'd been at the Times a long time, and to a degree, I started to feel like maybe I was repeating myself, or right. or, and I also to a degree also just got tired of the drumbeat of news. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it could be interesting, but there were times when it just felt like it was relentless, and I wanted to find a way to as a writer to be more deeply engaged with artists and I think that I can do that here. It with, offers an opportunity with, for that. Right? Yeah, I mean with the publications that this uh, gallery puts out which are you know top-notch and with uh, a magazine that I'm that they've had that I'm going to help uh, restart. Um, Volume, right? Right and uh, so I think that will be it'll it'll just it will be a way another way to try to deepen my own knowledge about a lot of 20th century uh, art and 21st century art and also to be engaged with a lot of living artists in ways that'll be deeper than maybe you ever really could at a daily newspaper right outside of magazine because even if you even if you're going to New Mexico or wherever else to meet the artist you're there for a day yeah it's a di you know and it is it's a different sort of engagement uh, I got to a, I think I got to a point in my knowledge about art that I and my seriousness about it that I kind of wanted to I felt like I needed to maybe go somewhere else to continue to deepen that and be involved with it so what was that pull toward art as a child then I don't know was I your think family, it was your parents or what was no no my my dad was a telephone lineman uh, you know climb telephone poles yeah. to uh, and my mom was a teacher's aide and neither one of them was particularly interested in art or books but I was a I was a bookish kid I read a lot and um, and I you know and there was a little 
county library, you know, that had some basic, you know, gardeners and uh, gombrich and, you know, just the yeah. sort of like the story of art and sort of basic stuff like that. And I was always drawn to that. And I, you know, and it was, I didn't, it was like, little bits of it but it was I really liked that stuff and I liked art history well there's something um, about rural America I'm from small town Iowa and yeah. there's something about rural America where if you don't have those things you dig for it and search for it yeah uh, and I was talking to um, David Coleman who is also doing right. an interview wrote for the Times and he's from small town Texas yeah. as well too right we have that in common the yeah small town. but we were talking about this as well like Rauschenberg small town, used materials that were readily available, had just sort of like scraping to, to figure these things out and get to them. I think there's something to that. And I don't, it's well, interesting. Well, I, I definitely had that feeling, and you probably did too growing up, that I was, you know, I was at a vast distance from anything that mattered yeah, exactly. culturally. right. And so it probably did create this, you know, I, I was looking at books and I, I already knew that those books were fairly old and so whatever I was reading was kind of removed in history from what was going on right then but I also felt like I was at this incredible distance even from that stuff the old stuff and so it felt like there was this kind of yearning or longing yeah. uh, to I thought oh if I really really know this stuff that, that I can access in this library then Maybe there'll be some way it opens up something to get to yeah. it somehow, but I got to know it for I got to sort of have a sense of what's out there and that was it was the same about reading you know fiction and poetry and history and all that it was just this need to f feel like I had some access to the wider world. I wanted to bring this up earlier. You wrote a book about the metro subway yeah, yeah subway it subway. was called yeah called um subway land and it was it was basically just, it was comp a compilation of those columns uh, for, for the times, the tunnel vision columns. So you took all the columns and put them into... I took the best ones and I had the luxury of getting to kind of like polish some up and rewrite some of them and, and, uh, and try to make it into a bit of a, it, you know, it was, it was ultimately just recycled daily journalism, but I tried to make it into a bit of a narrative, um, you know, so following certain people through the subway and you know there were a couple of characters that would reemerge as as I did that so that was fun to do and you have a new novel i had the first my first novel which i've been working on for m more than 10 years uh, which is about a car thief in west texas in the early 1970s and it's it is set in that part of of west texas the panhandle part of texas where i grew up um, right what you know right I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I know that part of Texas really, yeah. really well, and I've, I've... You probably know that character, too. I kind of... Well, it was a character I'd always wanted to write about because um, I, I thought about the figure of the horse thief, and, you know, a horse thief in the West was, you know, it was a despicable character. Yeah. It was like why they were hung. Worst because, of the worst, yeah. Because if you didn't have a horse, you were as good as dead. And so I, I always had this character in my mind, sort of like the, the modern horse thief is the car, the car thief. And I, and I had this, in, this vision of this guy who kind of, he was a kind of a, a loner and a drifter who almost disappeared right in the middle of where he lived by stealing these cars. And ultimately, as I sat with this character, he became 
a lot more unsettled and disturbed, actually. And he, a regular car thief who kind of goes through a nervous breakdown, and he, he gets to the point where he cannot abide owning anything. He can't have possessions. He's just, his constitution won't let him own anything. And so the way that he deals with this, he, he could go be you know, a hermit somewhere, but he doesn't know how to do that. He's a 20th century man. And so he, he, the way he, de he decides to live with no possessions is he sort of haunts motels. He finds some guy who's roughly his size. He waits till the guy's at the pool or the cafe, and he breaks into the guy's room. He steals all of his stuff in his car, and he drives away. And he goes to the other side of, the, the, of West Texas, and he lives in that guy's stuff for a while, and when that stuff starts to feel like it's his, then he repeats the process. He's a man without possessions. It felt uh, important to me because at this stage of late capitalism, I just, I, I wanted, I had this character who couldn't really do it anymore. He just, he yeah. couldn't go through all the motions of the way you're supposed to live now. I mean, this is set in the 70s, but still, it's, it's, it's when... Relevant to now. Yeah, it's when I actually looked, you know, and like the, at some point in the very late 60s or early 70s is when the United States changed from being a producer to a consumer society, where our GDP was primarily driven by what we bought than Trinity what we too. produce. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, and it's, you know, in the early 70s is when I was a kid in West Texas, and it's, uh, you know, the, the feeling of what that part of, rural America felt like in those years, is, that's when I became aware of it. It's really powerful for me. Weirdly, I mean, there's no, there's no art per se in the book, but all of the feel of that, because I wrote it during the years when I was covering art for the Times. When did you finish it? I finished it about two years ago, and, it, and Simon and & Schuster bought it last year, and then it'll be out next summer. And so it really did coincide. With, I mean, I had started pieces of it earlier in my life that didn't right. work and then I finally got it to work and but it, it was during the years when I was writing about art and a lot of it a lot of the feel of it would not be the same if it weren't if it weren't for a lot of artists that I knew especially like artists who worked in the West land artists like Michael Heiser and Smithson and also photographers like um, Stephen Shore and William Eggleston who, in a way, sometimes now when I think about growing up in the West and about road trips and motels and things like that, yeah. my own memories are so completely commingled with Eggleston and Shorf yeah. and, and Lee Friedlander photographs, I can't disentangle there, them. It's interesting it's set in that time frame, too, because that's, the works that those artists are producing, that, that doesn't exist anymore. That landscape or the way yeah. that... that that rural America. I grew up crossing the country with my dad um, in a sidecar going to motorcycle rallies. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know. Yeah, and it was, you'd be in the middle of Missoula, Montana camping. It's that imagery and it's that sense of place that is so hard to contextualize outside of some of that artwork. You know, that artwork was power, it is still powerful for me and it clear, it really did shape the feel of the book and how I describe things and, and, and also just the, the, the kind of the, um, the unsettled feel of certain artists who are still working like Richard Prince and Cindy Sherman and others, that kind of 
I don't know, that, that weird, unsettled in America, unsettled in, even in your own skin kind of feeling. So that, what you're saying is your, your car thief is really Richard Prince. <laughs> he's kind of, well, you know, Richard, Richard's, Richard's obsession with cars. Yeah. And I mean, this, this guy, my, my car thief, isn't really, you know, he's not obsessed with cars. They're sort of a means to an end. Right. But, but when you think about writing a book set in the early 70s about a car thief, you have to learn, you have to really educate yourself all about the history of cars then right. to make it feel right. And, um, and, and Richard's obsession with, a certain the the way Americans express themselves through their cars, yeah. especially in the seventies, sixties, seventies, and, and movies era, like yeah. movies that were important for him, like Vanishing Point. Yeah. I mean, that really informed a lot of this. And I mean, at some point, I decided that every single car my guy stole would be a make that's no longer in existence. They're all right? uh, discontinued makes and models of cars. This trajectory of small town Texas to writing at the Times through the metro section and then doing the art but having the art influence like right back into Texas writing about yeah. small town it's really interesting and sort of remarkable I, I really enjoyed hearing about it um, thanks yeah of course yeah it's fun <laughs> it's uh, it's fun to get to bring that knowledge and that kind of sensibility back to, you know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted, I wanted out of West Texas lock, stock and barrel. And I, and I, you know, I don't, I don't really have any desire to live back there again. But once I got out of there and got distance from it, I had a great appreciation for it. There's a nostalgia how, for it. How yeah. stark that landscape is. And I learned much more about the history of it after I left about, you know, about the Comanche and about um, the settlement of that part of Texas. And, and I gained an appreciation for it. And then to get to, to take a lot of what I know about, about art in those years and the way artists looked at the West and at rural America and at the consumer culture and all that kind of stuff, and to get to take that back and lay it on top of this place that I know really well in my bones was fun, yeah. really fun to do. Well, I got to tell you, Randy, the I don't know what I expected to get out of this interview, but it's nice to hear that you sort of live and breathe the art and that you're so excited by it as I, as yeah, like I still artists. am as much as ever but it's hard as an artist sitting on the outside we have no clue what to expect from the people who are writing these things or, right you know I mean it's yeah. it's, it's all in, in the air you have no idea right. so it's exciting for me to be able to talk to you and actually hear that because it makes the writing even much more interesting I'm going to go back and read some of the stuff that you've written but yeah um Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot. I appreciate this. I hope you still have time for lunch. Yeah, (laughs) I do.